Welcome to the Bunyip and Ayotashli podcast. Welcome back to Bunyip and Ayotashli, a speculative fiction podcast. Please consider liking and subscribing on whatever platform you listen on, and also please consider adding a little to the tip jar if you like what you hear and would like me to keep doing it. This week I have two fairy tales for you, one from Japan and one from England. The first is from a compilation of Japanese tales by Ye Theodora Ozaki, and it's called My Lord Bag of Rice. Long, long ago there lived in Japan a brave warrior known as Tawara Toda, or My Lord Bag of Rice. His true name was Fujiwara Hidesato, and there is a very interesting story of how he came to change his name. One day he sallied forth in search of adventures, for he had the nature of a warrior and could not bear to be idle. So he buckled on his two swords, took his huge bow, much taller than himself, in his hand, and slinging his quiver on his back, started out. He had not gone far when he came to the bridge of Sedo no Karashi, spanning one end of the beautiful Lake Biwa. No sooner had he set foot on the bridge than he saw lying right across his path a huge serpent dragon. Its body was so big that it looked like the trunk of a large pine tree, and it took up the whole width of the bridge. One of its huge claws rested on the parapet on one side of the bridge, while its tail lay right against the other. The monster seemed to be asleep, and as it breathed, fire and smoke came out of its nostrils. At first, Hidesato could not help feeling alarmed at the sight of this horrible reptile lying in his path, for he must either turn back or walk right over its body. He was a brave man, however, and putting aside all fear, went forward dauntlessly. Crunch, crunch, he stepped now on the dragon's body, now between its coils, and without even one glance backward, he went on its way. He had only gone a few steps when he heard someone calling him from behind. On turning back, he was much surprised to see that the monster dragon had entirely disappeared, and in its place was a strange-looking man, who was bowing most ceremoniously to the ground. His red hair streamed over his shoulders and was surmounted by a crown in the shape of a dragon's head, and his sea-green dress was patterned with shells. Hidesato knew at once that this was no ordinary mortal, and he wondered much at the strange occurrence. Where had the dragon gone in such a short space of time? Or had it transformed itself into this man, and what did the whole thing mean? While these thoughts passed through his mind, he had come up to the man on the bridge and now addressed him. Was it you that called me just now? Yes, it was, answered the man. I have an earnest request to make of you. Do you think you can grant it to me? If it is in my power to do so, I will, answered Tedesato. But first, tell me who you are. I am the Dragon King of the Lake, and my home is in these waters just under this bridge. And what is it you have to ask of me? said Hidesato. I want you to kill my mortal enemy, the centipede, who lives on the mountain beyond. 
and the dragon king pointed to a high peak on the opposite shore of the lake. I have lived now for many years in this lake, and I have a large family of children and grandchildren. For some time past we have lived in terror, for a monster centipede has discovered our home, and night after night it comes and carries off one of my family. I am powerless to save them. If it goes on much longer like this, not only shall I lose all my children, but I myself must fall a victim to the monster. I am, therefore, very unhappy, and in my extremity I determined to ask the help of a human being. For many days with this intention I have waited on the bridge in the shape of the horrible serpent dragon that you saw, in the hope that some strong, brave men would come along. But all who came this way, as soon as they saw me, were terrified and ran away as fast as they could. You are the first man I have found able to look at me without fear, so I knew at once that you were a man of great courage. I beg you to have pity upon me. Will you not help me and kill my enemy, the centipede? Hinesato felt very sorry for the dragon king on hearing his story, and readily promised to do what he could to help him. The warrior asked where the centipede lived, so that he might attack the creature at once. The dragon king replied that its home was on the mountain Mikami, but that as it came every night at a certain hour to the palace in the lake, it would be better to wait till then. So Hidesato was conducted to the palace of the dragon king under the bridge. Strange to say, as he followed his host downwards, the waters parted to let them pass, and his clothes did not even feel damp as he passed through the flood. Never had Hidesato seen anything so beautiful as this palace, built of white marble beneath the lake. He had often heard of the Sea King's palace at the bottom of the sea, where all the servants and retainers were saltwater fishes, but here was a magnificent building in the heart of Lake Baiwa. The dainty goldfishes, red carp, and silvery trout waited upon the Dragon King and his guests. Hidesato was astonished at the feast that was spread out for him. The dishes were crystallized lotus leaves and flowers, and the chopsticks were of the rarest ebony. As soon as they sat down, the sliding doors opened, and ten lovely goldfish dancers came out, and behind them followed ten red carp musicians with the koto and the samisen. Thus the hours flew by till midnight, and the beautiful music and dancing had banished all thoughts of the centipede. The dragon king was about to pledge the warrior in a fresh cup of wine, when the palace was suddenly shaken by a tramp, tramp, as if a mighty army had begun to march not far away. Hidesato and his host both rose to their feet and rushed to the balcony, and the warriors saw on the opposite mountain two great balls of glowing fire coming nearer and nearer. The dragon king stood by the warrior's side, trembling with fear. The centipede! The centipede! Those two balls of fire are its eyes! It's coming for its prey! Now is the time to kill it! Hitosato looked where his host pointed, and in the dim light of the starlit evening, behind the two balls of fire, he saw the long body of an enormous centipede winding around the mountains. And the light in its hundred feet glowed like so many distant lanterns moving slowly up towards the shore. Hitosato showed not the least sign of fear. He tried to calm the dragon king. Don't be afraid, I shall surely kill the centipede. Just bring me my bow and arrows. The dragon king did as he was bid, and the warrior noticed that he had only three arrows left in his quiver. He took the bow and, fitting an arrow to the notch,
took careful aim and let fly. The arrow hit the centipede right in the middle of its head, but instead of penetrating, it glanced off harmlessly and fell to the ground. Nothing daunted, Hidesato took another arrow, fitted it into the notch of his bow, and let fly. Again, the arrow hit the mark. It struck the centipede right in the middle of its head, only to glance off and fall to the ground. The centipede was invulnerable to weapons. When the Dragon King saw that even this brave warrior's arrows were powerless to kill the centipede, he lost heart and began to tremble with fear. The warrior saw that he had now only one arrow left in his quiver, and if this one failed, he could not kill the centipede. He looked across the waters. The huge reptile had wound its horrid body seven times round the mountain and would soon come down to the lake. Nearer and nearer gleamed fireballs of eyes, and the light of its hundred feet began to throw reflections in the still waters of the lake. Then, suddenly, the warrior remembered that he had heard that human saliva was deadly to centipedes. But this was no ordinary centipede. This was so monstrous that even to think of such a creature made one creep with horror. Hidesato determined to try his last chance. So, taking his last arrow and putting the end of it in his mouth, he fitted the notch to his bow, took careful aim once more, and let fly. This time the arrow again hit the centipede right in the middle of its head, but instead of glancing off harmlessly as before, it struck home to the creature's brain. Then, with a convulsive shudder, the serpentine body stopped moving, and the firing light of its eyes and hundred feet darkened to a dull glare like the sunset of a stormy day, and then went out in blackness. A great darkness now overspread the heavens. The thunder rolled, and the lightning flashed, and the wind roared in fury, and it seemed as if the world were coming to an end. The Dragon King and his children and retainers all crouched in different parts of the palace, frightened to death, for the building was shaken to its foundation. At last the dreadful night was over. Day dawned beautiful and clear. The centipede was gone from the mountain. Then Hedesato called to the Dragon King to come out with him on the balcony, for the centipede was dead and he had nothing more to fear. Then all the inhabitants of the palace came out with joy, and Hidesato pointed to the lake. There lay the body of the dead centipede floating on the water, which was dyed red with its blood. The gratitude of the dragon king knew no bounds. The whole family came and bowed down before the warrior, calling him their preserver and the bravest warrior in all Japan. Another feast was prepared more sumptuous than the first. All kinds of fish prepared in every imaginable way, raw, stewed, boiled, and roasted, served on coral trays and crystal dishes, were put before him, and the wine was the best that Hidesato had ever tasted in his life. To add to the beauty of everything, the sun shone brightly, the lake glittered like a liquid diamond, and the palace was a thousand times more beautiful by day than by night. His host tried to persuade the warrior to stay a few days, but Hidesato insisted on going home, saying that he had now finished what he had come to do and must return. The Dragon King and his family were all very sorry to have him leave so soon, but since he would go, they begged him to accept a few small presents, so they said, in token of their gratitude to him for delivering them forever from their horrible enemy, the centipede. As the warriors stood in the porch taking leave, 
train of fish was suddenly transformed into a retinue of men, all wearing ceremonial robes and dragon's crowns on their heads to show that they were servants of the great dragon king. The presents they carried were as follows. First, a large bronze bell. Second, a bag of rice. Third, a roll of silk. Fourth, a cooking pot. Fifth, a bell. Hidesato did not want to accept all these presents, but as the Dragon King insisted, he could not well refuse. The Dragon King himself accompanied the warrior as far as the bridge, and then took leave of him with many bows and good wishes, leaving the procession of servants to accompany Hidesato to his house with the presents. The warrior's household and servants had been very much concerned when they found that he did not return the night before, but they finally concluded that he had been kept by the violent storm and had taken shelter somewhere. When the servants on the watch for his return caught sight of him, they called to everyone that he was approaching, and the whole household turned out to meet him, wondering much what the retinue of men bearing presents and banners that followed him could mean. As soon as the Dragon King's retainers had put down the presents, they vanished, and Hidesato told all that had happened to him. The presents which he received from the grateful Dragon King were found to be of magic power. The bell only was ordinary, and as Hidesato had no use for it, he presented it to the temple nearby, where it was hung up to boom out the hour of day over the surrounding neighborhood. The single bag of rice, however much was taken from it day after day for the meals of the night and his whole family, never grew less. The supply in the bag was inexhaustible. The roll of silk, too, never grew shorter. The time after time, long pieces were cut off to make the warrior a new suit of clothes to go to court in at the new year. The cooking pot was wonderful, too. No matter what was put in it, it cooked deliciously, whatever was wanted without any firing. Truly a very economical saucepan. The fame of Hidesato's fortune spread far and wide, and as there was no need for him to spend money on rice or silk or firing, he became very rich and prosperous, and was henceforth known as My Lord Bag of Rice. The second tale this week is from England and called The Three Sillies. Once upon a time there was a farmer and his wife who had one daughter, and she was courted by a gentleman. Every evening he used to come and see her and stop to supper at the farmhouse, and the daughter used to be sent down into the cellar to draw the beer for supper. So one evening she had gone down to draw the beer, and she happened to look up at the ceiling while she was drawing, and she saw a mallet stuck in one of the beams. It must have been there a long, long time, but somehow or other she had never noticed it before, and she began a-thinking. And she thought it was very dangerous to have that mallet there, for she said to herself, Suppose him and me were to be married, and we was to have a son, and he was grown up to be a man, and come down into the cellar to draw the beer, like as I'm doing now, and the mallet was to fall on his head and kill him. What a dreadful thing it would be! She put down the candle and the jug, and sat herself down, and began a-crying. Well, they began to wonder upstairs how it was that she was so long drawing the beer, and her mother went down to see after her, and she found her sitting on the settle crying, and the beer running over the floor. Why, whatever is the matter? said her mother. Oh, mother, says she, look at that horrid mallet. 
Suppose we was to be married, and was to have a son, and he was grown up, and was to come down to the cellar and draw the beer, and the mallet was to fall on his head and kill him. What a dreadful thing it would be! Dear, dear, what a dreadful thing it would be, said the mother, and she sat down aside of the daughter and started crying too. Then, after a bit, the father began to wonder that they didn't come back, and he went down into the cellar to look after them himself. And there they two sat crying, and the beer running all over the floor. Whatever is the matter, he, says he. Why, says the mother, look at that horrid mallet. Just suppose if our daughter and her sweetheart was to be married, and was to have a son, and he was to grow up, and was to come down into the cellar to draw the beer, and the mallet was to fall on his head and kill him, what a dreadful thing it would be. Dear, 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 so it would, said the father, and he sat himself down aside the other two and started crying. Now the gentleman got tired of stopping up in the kitchen by himself, and at last he went down into the cellar too, to see what they were after. And there they three sat a-crying side by side, and the beer running all over the floor. And he ran straight and turned the tap. Then he said, Whatever are you three doing, sitting there crying and letting the beer run all over the floor? Oh, says the father, look at that horrid mallet. Suppose you and our daughter was to be married, and was to have a son, and he was to grow up and was to come down into the cellar to draw the beer, and the mallet was to fall on his head and kill him. And then they all started a-crying worse than before. But the gentleman burst out a-laughing, and reached up and pulled out the mallet. And then he said, I've traveled many miles, and I never met three such big sillies as you three before. And now I shall start out on my travels again. And when I can find three bigger sillies than you three, then I'll come back and marry your daughter. So he wished them good-bye, and started off on his travels, and left them all crying because the girl had lost her sweetheart. Well, he set off, and he traveled a long way, and at last he came to a woman's cottage that had some grass growing on the roof, and the woman was trying to get her cow to go up a ladder to the grass, and the poor thing durst not go. So the gentleman asked why the woman was doing what she was doing. Why, looky, she said, look at all that beautiful grass. I'm going to get the cow up on the roof to eat it. She'll be quite safe, for I shall tie a string round her neck and pass it down the chimney and tie it to my wrist as I go about the house, so she can't fall off without my knowing it. Oh, you poor silly, said the gentleman. You should cut the grass and throw it down to the cow. But the woman thought it was easier to get the cow up the ladder than to get the grass down, so she pushed her and coaxed her and got her up and tied a string around her neck and passed it down the chimney and fastened it to her own wrist. And the gentleman went on his way, but he hadn't gone far when the cow tumbled off the roof and hung by the string tied around her neck, and it strangled her. And the weight of the cow tied to her wrist pulled the woman up the chimney, and she was stuck fast halfway and was smothered in the soot. Well, that was one big silly. And the gentleman went on and on, and he went to an inn to stop the night, and they were so full at the inn that they had to put him in a double-bedded room, and another traveler was to sleep in the other bed. The other man was a very pleasant fellow, and they got very friendly together, but in the morning, when they were both getting up, the gentleman was surprised to see the other hang his trousers on the knobs of the chest of drawers and run across the room and try to jump into them. And he tried over and over again, and couldn't manage it, 
and the gentleman wondered whatever he was doing it for. At last he stopped and wiped his face with his handkerchief. Oh, dear, he says, I do think trousers are the most awkwardest kind of clothes that ever were. I can't think who could have invented such things. It takes me the best part of an hour to get into mine every morning, and I get so hot. How do you manage yours? So the gentleman burst out laughing and showed him how to put them on, and he was very much obliged to him and said he never should have thought of doing it that way. So that was another big silly. Then the gentleman went on his travels again, and he came to a village, and outside the village there was a pond, and round the pond was a crowd of people, and they had got rakes and brooms and pitchforks reaching into the pond, and the gentleman asked what was the matter. Why, they said, matter enough, moons tumbled into the pond, and we can't rake her out anyhow. So the gentleman burst out laughing and told them to look up in the sky, and that it was only the shadow in the water. But they wouldn't listen to him, and abused him shamefully, and he got away as quick as they could. So there was a whole lot of sillies, bigger than them three sillies at home. So the gentleman returned back home, and married the farmer's daughter, and if they didn't live happily forever after, that's nothing to do with you or me. But what is to do with you and me is that I hope you enjoyed this week's stories. I'll be back with more next week. In the meantime, please do hit that like and subscribe button, and I look forward to sharing more stories next week. Thank you for listening to Bunyip and Ayotashli, a speculative fiction podcast. <laughs>